Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Out of the Question podcast. Jude 1.3 makes this statement. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. So exactly what does it mean to contend for the faith? Charles, in thinking through our discussion topic for today, three words in that verse stood out to me that require, I believe, a good definition contend, the, and faith. And while we'll be discussing what it means to contend, I think the other two words need to be defined for this discussion. So, Charles, what is faith? Well, I think in the context of uh, Jude, in which we're sort of keying off on this, and, and I believe what the author is referring to, in this case, the faith means the sum total of the kingdom message, the gospel of the kingdom, which Jesus proclaimed, and really the the, the full-orbed nature of biblical revelation. Was- so you're saying from Genesis to Revelation, even though when Jude writes this, the New Testament canon isn't complete, he's talking about the revelation from God. Absolutely. And as Dr. Rushdini points out in his commentary on Jude, you know, there were plenty of people all around in the Greek-speaking world where the gospel kingdom message was being proclaimed who were already religious people and involved in various types of way. I guess today we'd call them cults or New Age religions. And so they wanted to improve the Christian faith. They wanted to take the message of Jesus as taught by the apostles and add to it, take away from it with the the view to improving it. So to to answer your question directly, I believe when he says uh, contend for and I'll say a few words in a few moments about some other possible translations. The faith, that's what he's referring to, the, the teachings of the apostles and of Holy Scripture. And that's why I pointed out the article, the. Yes. He doesn't say to contend for your faith or for our faith or for a faith. He says the faith. And so faith is a noun there. Let's get grammatical here. Faith is a noun. It's not something you do. It's something that is received by means of grace. So therefore, it's objective and not subjective, correct? Absolutely. Okay. So this thing, this faith that needs to be contended for, it's important that people understand what they're contending for. If you're in an athletic contest, let's say football, and you don't understand that the ball's supposed to go over the line at the other end of the field... You could run the wrong direction and you're contending, but what are you contending for? So you sort of need to know the rules and you need to know the goal. And I'm sorry to say, and I know that we've talked about this in the past, a lot of people who bear the name of Christ can't answer those questions, what it is they're contending for. I think one reason for that is an issue that we have hammered time and again in these podcasts and Others uh, associated with the Chalcedon Foundation have written and spoken on this issue, as did Dr. Rastuni, of course, the harmful influence of a pietistic way of thinking 
when people talk about, uh, you know, the faith, well, like you indicated, they may be thinking of my personal faith, my faith in Jesus. But, you know, when you look carefully at what Jude is saying here, it's pretty clear that something else entirely than an interior personal feeling of faith is what's in view, because he says this is the faith that was delivered to the saints once and for all. So, you know, your personal experience is not something that's delivered to the saints. You know, it's the sum total of the knowledge of the kingdom message that he's referring to there. And we'll acknowledge the fact that we receive things subjectively, right? You and I both go outside and it's snowing. You might love snow. I might hate snow. I might have a hat on. You don't. So we're going to experience things differently. But we'd say, objectively speaking, it's snowing, correct? Correct. Absolutely. Yes. So the word contend, you know, bit of trivia, appears in the Bible apparently no fewer than 56 times. And so various people are told to contend with other people. There is this idea of striving, struggling in opposition, that there's two sides. And when I hear the word contend, I often think of a boxing match. Who are the contenders? Who are the people who are going to fight in this match? And at some point, someone's going to be declared the winner. And if you think of a boxing match, not that I'm a big boxing fan, the people who go into the ring, if it's going to be a match, both need to be prepared. Both need to have skill. Both need to have some idea of how their opponent is going to react to them so they can counter it. But I think more people, at least in some of the circles I've traveled, they don't contend for the faith. They want to pamper their faith. They want to nurture their faith. They want to treat their faith like a little plant that's growing in a greenhouse and and they've got to just make sure it grows. But that's not what Jude is telling his listeners. No, as a matter of fact, and let's just get real uh, academic here and sound like we know what we're talking about. The Greek word here is epigonizomai. And, you know, one reason some of the other translations have something different than just contend for is because the the base meaning of that Greek term, which means to make a strenuous effort to struggle, you know, it, it it's more than just, you know, okay, hold up your end of the discussion. There, there's something very intense involved here. There's a couple of translations I like the way that they they do it. The New Jerusalem Bible translation, it has it this way, fight hard for the faith which has been once and for all entrusted to God's people. Another translation, uh, the God's Word to the Nations translation, encourage you to continue your fight for the Christian faith. So that has a little more force to it, and I think captures the flavor of what the wording means there. But again, as uh, Dr. Rastuni points out in the commentary on Jude, it is the faith. And and I I think he makes an important point that this is not something that needs any kind of further development or elaboration. It it is the faith that is once for all delivered. And he makes a very important point, too, that the development, the the further elaboration is not in in doctrine. It is in personal application in our day-to-day lives and how the faith affects me in terms of my personal life, my family life, my life in a Christian society. There's a lot at stake in this intense struggle. We are certainly in a very similar place today in our culture to where these earliest Christians to whom this letter of Jude was addressed, because as I said a moment ago, 
Now, the place was just uh, fermenting, bubbling with all kinds of uh, fervent religious uh, atmosphere, all kinds of people with theological, philosophical ideas attached to pagan and Greek philosophy. And they were all too eager to take over the growing Christian movement and fashion it into something that they could market for themselves, put it that way. Exactly. Now, how this came about as a topic, I am currently teaching some young people through Rush Dooney's book, Law and Liberty, and another group through the Christian Survey of World History lectures and book. And I'm trying to impart to them that it isn't so much necessary, especially in the history group, to remember dates and names and things like that, that this is a Christian survey, that we're looking at history with the template of the word of God. And it's interesting that some young people don't like the idea that they're in an army, that there is a war, and their responsibility is to contend for the faith. Now, it's not that young people are chicken. They're not. These are all good kids from a Christian home. But I think they have not been surrounded in the greater Christian community because their parents get it but that it's no accident that they were born into a Christian family. It's no accident that they're being homeschooled, and it's no accident that they're being exposed to this material. And I keep pointing out to them, the good news is, this is where God has placed you. The bad news is, if you don't do something with what you've been given, God will not be pleased. So now you know, because of where you were born and how you were born and and what you're studying, you have to get good at contending for the faith in such a way that you will love your enemies enough to help them no longer be the enemies of God and be the children of God. They get it. But I dare say, Charles, when I talk to adults, many of whom have been in the faith for decades, they're much more, we're going to persuade people. We've got to be nice. We don't, we maybe shouldn't emphasize this over that because We want to win people. Well, you don't win people. You win for the side you're fighting with or for, I should say. And and so as a result of fighting for and contending for the faith, it's not necessarily going to be easy. It's not necessarily always going to be pleasant. And you might get some wounds in the process. I think we have to strive to balance everything that Jesus taught concerning how we interact with other people, along with the exhortation of the Holy Scripture, in this case, the book of Jude, to do what we're talking about, which is to earnestly fight for the faith. Now, in order to put that in some perspective, we know that there are people who are mentioned, either directly or indirectly, in the New Testament, and also, for that matter, in the Older Testament, who are considered God's enemies, and their inheritance and their future is damnation. Now, let me hasten to add, it's not our responsibility to figure out who those people are and tell them, excuse me, you're damned. (laughs) You know, uh, they may well be, but that's, you know, something that they have to, we may want to help them realize they're in, they're in in danger of damnation, depending on, you know, their orientation of things. Uh, But my point is that deciding that we need to have the soft touch when it comes to contending, fighting for the faith is not what we're being exhorted to do here. These Christians, as we are today, were under direct threat. They were under attack. And it's interesting that 
you know, there are different images about how Christians are to react to persecution and attack. And I don't see anything here that would indicate that Jude is telling Christians to turn themselves into a doormat. Not at all. So I think this is, again, the, the issue of balance. How do we maintain this, frankly, militant stance in terms of guarding the faith, defending the faith, but at the same time recognizing that, you know, we are not pagans, and our, our goal is not to slash and burn and, conv- and convert people at the point of a sword. That's Other religions do that. But at the same time, I think that, as you pointed out, Christians uh, have not been very well prepared to do this, either because of the emotional, psychological element of what it means to fight and strongly contend for the faith, but also even among people who have taken this seriously, there is an immediate defect uh, or flaw, I should say, in their efforts, however noble they may be, to do so. And here I'll mention, uh, I know when I was coming along in the Christian faith many decades ago, if people got interested in what we call apologetics, defending or contending for the faith, oh, well, you need to go read Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. That was the big book everybody was exhorted to read. Now, of course, there are some interesting things in that book up to a certain point, but the one big flaw in that book is it doesn't address the serious issue about what the problem is. The problem is you can look at all the evidence in the world, but if you starting with the wrong starting point, which is, well, my mind can determine if this evidence is valid, and I, if I just get enough of this evidence, then sure, I can I can be convinced that God's word is true, when in fact, Scripture teaches us nothing of the sort. The problem is we aren't able to interpret the evidence properly because we're starting from the standpoint of my mind is the ultimate judge. And if, if I could just be convinced with enough mathematical formulas or evidences, then I'll just come right around. The trap is when people decide the important parts of the faith and the less important parts of the faith, as though they're going to, you know, give the cliff notes for God. Yeah, he wrote a Bible inspired by the Holy Spirit, 66 books spanning, you know, centuries, centuries, centuries. But that's not how God identifies himself. He says, I am the Lord, I change not. So you have to wonder how many people sit in churches who don't know the laws of the tithe, the laws of restitution, the laws of sexuality, the laws of just weights and measures. But they go along happily thinking that what they need to do is convince someone to accept or receive Jesus. Well, when I used the analogy of you and I going outside and it's snowing, You could say we receive the snow on our heads, but we didn't cause the snow to come on our heads, right? So this idea of receiving is somewhat passive in as much as with the theology of Calvinistic and Reformed theology that we don't choose God, he chooses us. So exactly what are we contending for? When you look at the implications of contending, It's something worth dying for, something worth protecting, something that must be defended, something that needs to be reclaimed, something with the authority to punish and oppose, and actually something to quarrel over. In other words, there are plenty of things in life we wouldn't want to quarrel over, we wouldn't want to die for, but God's word, God's standard, and the kingdom is something that those with the Holy Spirit are empowered to do. 
And I think you'll agree that's our job. We don't have any other job. That is exactly our job and the central significance of it and the, um, well, I guess I'll call it the, uh, the absolute importance and necessity of it is based on the fact that not only do we not have no other, we have no other job, but there is no other way of life. There's no other truth. This is the one and anything else is a step down. And depending on how far a step down, it is a step down into hell on earth. Now, the necessity of doing this, uh, I've referred to Dr. Rastuni's writing here a few times. But let me just quote him directly in, in this first part of Jude. He, he says here, the churches at the time, in, in Jude's time, they were facing a serious problem in infiltration by alien groups who saw in the success of Christianity an opportunity to capture a vigorous faith for their own different purposes. And he says throughout church history, infiltration has been a common problem. And this gets to another issue about, uh, and I would be interested in your take on this, who exactly are we to be contending with in terms of the, the faith once delivered to all the saints? Well, I don't think it's going up on somebody's door, knocking and saying, hi, let's have a fight. <laughs> I don't think that's contending for the faith. However, we need to be aware of those who will want to use the Church of Jesus Christ as a means to further their own ends. And uh, I think we mentioned it in the past. There is an interesting documentary called Enemies Within the Church, and it sort of laid out in great detail how seminaries had been infiltrated with socialistic Marxist views. And why did this infiltration succeed? And I think most people would agree that the ineffectiveness of the church has a lot to do with the fact that the faith has not been successfully contended for. But the the reason isn't because the people of God were doing everything right. If the people of God did not consider it important to be experts in the law, to realize that they stand before God responsible for every jot and tittle, it's not just someone else is responsible for that, then they never saw the enemies coming and maybe just maybe the things that were being promoted was like, you're not so bad if you do this because this is what's important. And so by allowing um, themselves to be uninformed in detail of what God's word has to say, they were really sitting ducks. And, and I think Jude is saying here, go back to what the faith was that you received and stop having your ears tickled and going after these other things. And this really is an example of, I, I would call it asymmetrical warfare. You know, we, we have, as Christians, from all, well, from the very beginning, as we're reading here in Jude, we've never been able to simply rest and say, okay, we, we, we're being attacked on this front. That's the only thing we have to worry about. And, you know, we fortify the, uh, the battlements. And so as long as we're, we're dealing with this particular issue on this front, we're safe. Now, it doesn't ever work that way. And we see this time and again, whether it be within the institutional church and institutions like seminaries, as you mentioned. And, you know, the, the question I asked about who is it that we're contending with? Well, it may well be obvious people with uh, bad agendas who may want to co-opt the Christian faith for their own um, purposes. And certainly 
supposedly conservative politicians are notorious for doing this sort of thing. You know, um, they, they all want to get the blessing of the great evangelical leaders and uh, the Catholic vote and all the rest of that. And most of these people would never come up on anybody's radar screen prior to their seeking political office as having been a dedicated follower of Jesus Christ. But all of a sudden, they become that when they're seeking political office. That's one example of contending for the faith, of saying, okay, let's let's hang on here just a moment. But on the other hand, and I think this is much closer to what Jude is talking about and what uh, Dr. Rastuni was referring to, is within the churches themselves, you know, we have this downgrade of leaders, unfortunately, who go off on all kinds of tangents, either because of, you know, personal sin or inclination, uh, because of the, uh, the the tenure of the times. I think it was G.K. Chesterton who once said some men would rather deny the truth than be behind the times. And I've always thought that was a pretty good observation. Really? And we're living in a day where we, we can see supposedly, well, I shouldn't say supposedly, historically, verifiably historically reformed and Bible-believing denominations have fallen off the edges and are right down the road to compromise in the same ways that, in some cases, the very now completely woke left-wing denominations that they originally left to get away from that kind of stuff, now they're going down the same path. So when I say it's asymmetrical warfare, it has to be fought on all fronts. Yeah, the Jehovah's Witnesses are standing out there on the corner in front of the whatever in the downtown town square. Yeah, you have to contend with them on some level. But don't forget about the people behind you, the people in front of you, in your own circle of acquaintances. Because, uh, and and let me just quickly say, you know, we we don't want to turn into the kind of people that nobody wants to be around because we we think everybody's, you know, a potential enemy. But at the same time, uh, we have to be on our guard and uh, fight for, struggle for this faith when it is under attack and un- under obvious threat. And if you're looking at yourself as part of the army of God. You do want to weed out or at least identify those within your ranks that are working against you and more than just working against you, working against the kingdom of God. Sadly, within the church, we still have this debate going on whether God's law is applicable to today. Well, I would say that is a great indication that people have not embraced the idea of what it truly means, what Jude is saying in terms of contending for the faith. Because if they're going to throw out God's law, there's going to be somebody's law. And then exactly who's contending against whom? And I've had conversations more than I care to, to be honest with you, where people say, Oh, no, no, we don't, we're not under the law. I just, I just live by the spirit. You know, so it's, he, he wakes up and he's living by the spirit. Ipso facto, everything he does is correct because he's living by the spirit. Well, that's delusional. And I don't want that guy next to me in the foxhole when people are shooting because he's just as likely to more so agree with the people shooting at me than looking at me as a fellow believer. And that I'm glad you mentioned that because that's the, the sort of thing that was beginning to work its way into the the Christian movement, the Church of Jesus, in the days of people like Jude and the early apostles. You know, people who were all into various spirit-led, you know, almost demonic. That's not the right word, but I guess what we would today call a, a, an, an orientation that, yeah, we have the inscripturated written word of God, 
but the leading of the spirit is just as powerful and just as, as significant. And the, the problem with that is that if we give, even if you say we're not, if we're giving any kind of authority to what we think the spirit has told us, then it inevitably is clashing with the word of God. And that's why it became an important thing in the Holy Spirit's work in the early church in giving us a canon of scripture where we understand by its own self-attestation, this alone is the word of God and nothing else. So whether it's somebody who says, well, you know, I know what it says in 1 Corinthians and in Second uh, Peter, but the Holy Spirit told me X, Y, and Z, that carries no weight. Right. Any more so, and let, let me just quickly add this, if some well-meaning archaeologist uh, digging around in some dusty place over in the Middle East discovers what could be verified as the authentic third letter of Paul to the Corinthians, Corinthians 3, <laughs> that would have no place whatsoever in the canon of Scripture because the canon is closed. It may be of, of historical interest and would be well worth reading, but it would not be considered divinely inspired Scripture. The whole idea of saying that the Spirit told me one thing, but the Word of God tells me something else really puts the Trinity in conflict with each other, the persons of the Trinity. And Rush Juni pointed out in his um, book, The Foundations of Social Order, every heresy attacks the Trinity in some way, shape, or form. Yes. And so uh, what man tends to do is, well, this is how I'm oriented to the world. I guess this is how the persons of the Trinity are oriented. I don't always get along with my husband, so maybe there's a struggle within the Trinity. Well, Three persons, but one God. And Jesus made it very clear that if you have seen him and receive him, you've received the Father. And he said, I'm going to send someone who will testify to all truth. So it isn't up for grabs. It isn't up for a democratic vote. Which doctrine do you like better? If you can't defend a doctrine that you're living by in terms of scripture, and be willing to discuss it with other people in terms of what does the word of God say. We're supposed to do that. We're supposed to mine the word of God. But a lot of people don't mine it. They've just decided, oh, somebody told me this is what it was, and I really like that. And so I don't think we need to fight. When, when I get into discussions, Charles, with people, and they can't answer from Scripture, they say, let's not fight. Let's agree to disagree. Is that really what we're going to say to Jesus when we stand before him? Let's agree to disagree. Yeah, it's the uh, the gospel according to Oprah Winfrey, right? <laughs> uh, so many people think that their attitudes of uh, love and care and concern for the other person are based on Scripture, when in fact they're coming from a variety of other sources. But I think that we can see in the things that we've said to this point that you have a a, a battlefront, a contending front that has to do with people who may be promoting, with the best of intentions, doctrines, teachings, ideas that are absolutely contrary to the teachings of Holy Scripture. Or, on the other hand, it may have to do with practices, violations of God's law. So whether or not I have a Sunday school teacher or a pastor or a church leader who begins to make some strange noises about the, well, let me just use the example used of the nature of the Trinity, then that's one thing. But then if someone else in a totally different venue says, well, you know, um, I, I think that 
uh, these folks are so nice. They're they're same sex couple. They they were married in a state where same sex marriage is legal. I guess it's all of them now, right? Why shouldn't we admit them to full membership and and to the Lord's table? That's another example where the faith has to be contended for. You may be misunderstood. Uh, you you may be thought less of for it, especially in a culture like ours. But this is the very thing you're referring to. We're going to say to Jesus, well, you know, we didn't really want to fight. Right, exactly. And this goes back to your theology. This is not an analogy that I came up with, but I love it. It's that if you think that people somehow are good, complete, reliable, without Christ, without the Holy Spirit having regenerated them, then your theology is faulty. There are no good people apart from what God calls good. And so do we think that there are people who could be better if Jesus was in their life, or do we view them as dead? And so the analogy that I like is you go into a morgue and you start screaming to people to get up. Well, if they're in the morgue, they're dead, right? So screaming at them, going up to their ear, nudging them, dead is dead. So do we view as those outside of Christ as dead? If we don't, then we'll say, well, they have something good to offer. Okay, so they're not a believer, but look at all the good, look at their resume. Look how good it is. So we've automatically put a standard there other than God's standard. And is that loving the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? I don't think there's anything left out of heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's your physical, it's your mental, it's your spiritual, it's your emotional. So we've made this compromise on a very fundamental level that Christianity is a good app, a good add-on, but it's not the essential. And I think that's where a lot of this comes from. And it raises a serious question, especially for people who call themselves Christians and no reason to think that they're not. If it's just an add-on, what do they think is the central thing? You know, is is it this, uh, and we have discussed this before, I think, is this attitude of so-called unconditional forgiveness or unconditional love for any and everything? Is that the essential thing? And where where does such an idea come from in terms of what Scripture teaches, which is supposed to be where our faith is grounded in what the divinely inspired inerrant Word of God teaches us? I've been poo-pooed at times with somebody saying, oh, well, she just reads a lot. You know, not everybody does. Or, yes, she just puts too much emphasis on this and there are other things. And I think a lot of times we want to cover up our own weaknesses. If you find the things in Scripture that you don't particularly like, and there are a lot that I'm sure when you read, you say, I don't know that I would have written it this way or I would have commanded it this way is we're usually coming up against our own sinfulness. And rather than decide that the scripture doesn't mean what it says, a lot of people say, well, I mean, it was for a different time to a different audience, but it doesn't really pertain to me now. Then we're thwarting the spirit because when the spirit makes us uncomfortable, which is not a bad thing, is when we look to the word of God and say, where do I need to reform? Yeah, it's interesting. I was just thinking too that... um... And focusing on this term that's used here about contending for the faith. Now, there are other places in Scripture where we find the English word contend. It's the same concept. It's not necessarily the same Greek or Hebrew-derived word. But I think uh, it's interesting to consider, for example, Psalm 35, verse 1, 
which in the English Standard Version, contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me, fight against those who fight against me. And when you kind of look up the the base meaning of the word translated contend, at least in that translation, it means destroy those, fight, mount warfare against these people who are mounting warfare against me. And I think for the Christian, we need to consider that that warfare can look like one thing at one time and something else in a totally different way. Obviously, if somebody's coming at you with a weapon and they've got rage and anger in their face, you can you can pretty much know you're under threat and maybe you're going to be engaged in a battle. But what if they look just the opposite? What if they're intending on doing just as much damage to you physically, emotionally, spiritually, but they look as sweet as they can be? Right. A great example would be all those people who still send their children to state schools because the teacher is nice. We have a good teacher. Well, that teacher doesn't get to act independently in that venue. If she does, she's usually gone pretty quickly. But they're they're missing that the uh, another root of contend is the word tenet. So what is the tenet of what you're fighting for? I dare say most people have no idea that the battle began in Genesis 3 and is culminated with the total regeneration of the earth eventually. Where did the battle get won? It got won at Calvary, but in God's ordination, he wants us to continue to contend. So there must be something in our sanctification that brings us closer to God, that makes us more holy when the tenets of our faith are front and center and everything we hear, everything we witness is evaluated in terms of scripture. And when people don't do that, when, when they, that's not their mindset, I think they resort to all the movies they've seen about war, grenades, bombs, etc. But the scripture says that the weapons of our warfare aren't carnal. We don't need to fight these battles with the weapons of guns and knives, etc. There is an analogy about the full armor of God. So that should give somebody a clue. Paul saying, <laughs> we're in a war. Did suddenly the war stop? Or did suddenly the, the battle strategy change that now we're supposed to make friends with the enemy as opposed to see them converted? Someone I follow on one of the social media sites made the point, and this is an example of, I think, how unfortunately too many Christians are uh, suffering from a lack of knowledge of their own history, how um, in the late A.D. 600s into the 700s A.D., the ancestors of, of many, many Christians in Europe were saved by a man named Charles Martel, who, if he had not mounted and con- a defense of the faith and a contention for the faith, most of us would probably be praying to Mecca five times a day right now. And the, the person who posted this said, you know, it, the, the, the modern evangelical Christian would have had Charles Martel handing out Bible tracts to the Muslims. <laughs> now, maybe the Lord could have been pleased to use that, but that's not what was called for at that particular moment. It took decisive physical action and defense to save the Christian uh, people of Europe. And by God's grace, that is what Charles Martel did. So uh, people need to examine, as we've said several times in this discussion, 
what is it that's motivating my ideas about what I think is proper uh, in terms of interacting with other people, especially when there is a direct attack and effort to undermine the Christian faith, either through emotions, through teaching, through doctrinal statements, uh, or, you know, whether it be something like, okay, we're, we're, we're going to start having drag queen story hour at your library up the street. Or maybe we should bring in the speaker to our church who's going to promote this idea because, you know, everybody else is doing this. You know, it's, it's not something that is popular. We, again, we have to be very careful about how we do these things, but what is our priority to be considered really sweet, nice people or to be considered people who are dedicated with an absolute fervor to contend for the faith and whose favor are we ultimately seeking in doing that and i do think that the whole idea of infiltration you can't have people who are well-meaning and i'll give you an example i recently had the opportunity to hear someone speak about his time living a homosexual lifestyle and by god's grace he he repented of his sin and now is an advocate for doing things god's way but what's troublesome to me is this terminology now that has made it into the church about the gay Christian. First of all, gay is a, is a word that was basically redefined to refer to the activity that God calls an abomination. There's nothing gay about it. Before gay, it was queer. Well, there's nothing just strange about it. The Bible calls it sinful. So when we start using the world's terminology, the psychology of why would somebody turn this way? I've rarely heard any converted person who had this lifestyle preoccupation, now something else, say, I was at war with God. And as a result of being at war with God, my life was horrible. And then I repented of my sin. I think what we have to remember is the major sin is unbelief in the creator, is a rejection of the offer of salvation. So when we start talking about, oh, I understand why this woman had an abortion, we can understand why she had an abortion. But if she wasn't kidnapped and tortured and they did it against her will, she must bear the responsibility that she destroyed the life that was made in the image of God. I'm not saying, well, that person can't be forgiven, but you know, you have to get to pay dirt. You have to say, what was the sin here? And, and why did I commit it? Because if you don't get to the root, then people can go along thinking they just made a better decision as opposed to rejecting God is not something you can undo on your own. If the Holy Spirit has not convicted you, and I mean conviction like, I am due the death penalty there. How can you appreciate that Jesus took the penalty for your sin if you haven't acknowledged the severity of your sin? I think that's very important for us to keep front and center when we consider this exhortation in the book of Jude to contend for the faith, that we're not simply talking about a book of systematic theology that we want to contend for. It is, in fact, just what you described, our deliverance from spiritual death, the removal of guilt because of our sins, and there is only one source from which we receive that, and by God's grace, others as well. And the problem is when the message of the kingdom is polluted 
when it's hijacked, when there are those who co-opt it for other purposes, that's one of the main things that people are being deprived of, is this great message of forgiveness and freedom from guilt and sin and the the ability by God's Spirit to live a, live a kingdom life. Exactly. So what exactly did Jesus die for? Did he die so that we'd have a more comfortable life? Did he die so that people would like us more? He died because there was a breach between God and man, and he repaired the breach. However, if you still want to live like the breach, okay, I can do this, but I'm saved or whatever it is, you miss the point. And God doesn't miss the point when people have not really surrendered their will to his, because guess what? Only the Holy Spirit can do it. So we may not be able to tell. There are no halos that say, oh, yes, there's a believer. Oh, no, that one isn't really. God sees the heart and he sees. And and we, we could say that if the spirit of God, if, if God the Father doesn't see Christ in us, see the spirit of Christ in us, then we remain enemies. So it's important to know what you've been saved from. If you didn't know you were drowning and somebody pulled you out, you might be irritated. But if you understand that I just saved you from a whole bunch of sharks, okay, now I understand. Very rarely do we understand the awful plight we're in before we're saved from it. We may not like the plight we're in, but we don't understand the magnitude of it. We don't understand that we have marched towards sin all our lives And it's only when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of us that we stop being the sin factory that we were. Well, Andrea, I hope that uh, our discussion today has been helpful to our listeners in terms of this vitally important exhortation and task that we are given to fight for, to contend for, uh, to do battle for the faith, and to recognize that it is a battle that must be fought on a number of different fronts and at the same time to manifest that attitude of contention and defense with the spirit that Jesus himself did and the earliest followers of Jesus. And it is that that won the world of that day for the kingdom. Right. And when we share the gospel, which is the news of Christ's victory, it's over sin and death, although We won't experience the fullness of that until the culmination of history, but we live now in a new life. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. He didn't say, Nicodemus, go out and get born again for dummies, figure out how to do it and come back when you've done it. It wasn't an assignment. It was a statement of reality. And I think that the contending for the faith, it happens in our own lives with ourselves if you if you don't find yourself contending sometimes with your own sinfulness, then you've mistaken yourself for a sinless person. You're being sanctified, but you're not fully sanctified. And so as we share the gospel, as I like to say, before you can make the good news seem good, you have to acquaint your listener with how bad the bad news is. I totally agree. Listeners, Charles referenced... Dr. Rostuni's book, The Commentary on Hebrews, James, and Jude, I'd recommend it. And I also 
for those who want to have a greater sense of history, there's the curriculum. I'll call it a curriculum because it includes both lectures and reading, a Christian survey of world history, and then also the foundations of social order, which talks about the assault on the doctrine of the Trinity in the early church and the kinds of things that Jude is referring to. So there's resources to help you understand this subject better, and I hope you make use of them. Well, thank you, Andrea. I think this is a a good topic for us to discuss, and I certainly hope our listeners have benefited from it. Indeed. Out of the question podcast at gmail.com is how you reach us, and we will talk with you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.